welcome. Prepare your heart as we dive into the Word of God. Pastor Steve of Beloved Church in Lena, Illinois is about to lead you into a life-changing encounter with grace and truth. Jesus Christ has a divine destiny perfectly orchestrated for those who are willing to be adventurous enough to receive His favor and blessing into their life. Our prayer is that you will allow the presence of the comforting Holy Spirit of God to radically display the Father's love for you. You are a part of God's beloved family, and that means you are greatly loved. Now over to Pastor Steve. We have two and a half questions. I say half because someone asked me a question in the, uh, in the library. Have you guys visited the library yet? Yeah. Whoops. It's better for you to have the library than Pastor Steve. <laughs> you should visit the library. They, uh, Marsha and her gang have done an incredible job. We've got a checkout system. We've got all the books. I just double-checked that we've got Covenant of Blood, the message that changed Kay and I's lives. So it, uh, what Pastor Rich ministered on last week on Covenant, if that, if that did anything on the inside of you, I double dog dare you to go get Brother Copeland's Covenant of Blood series and go through that because it will take you way deeper than Pastor Rich even went. And covenant is one of, it's one of my love languages. You, you use the word covenant and my ears perk up, my heart is ready. Let's have a conversation because that is really important. So we are, uh, this is really like one of our favorite Sundays of, I know we only get it six times, but this is literally one of our favorite Sundays of the whole year, time six, because we get directly to engage with the things that are on your heart. And I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit is not having us engage with things when we're doing regular pulpit ministry, but I know I've been in, Kay and I have been in church long enough to know that if a person has a question, most often many people have questions. So each of these folks that are asking questions are likely representing some of you. In the future, please feel free. This, this isn't special people that went through some process to get over here. Trust me, I know all these people. <laughs> They're as regular as you and me. So if you have any questions, you can send them in anonymously, like why is Steve's hair so stupid? You can send it in anonymously and then nobody will know that it's you that sent it in the question or you can sit up here personally or you can send in a question and put your name on it. That doesn't happen very often. So, hi Clark. Hi. You look good today in your... Can you hear me? Yep, yeah. in your little cool. hot vest. Thing. So I actually have two questions. One's very serious and the other one is... He doesn't care how he looks. Well, the second one's a quick one. The first one... Um, I'm glad it's going to talk about love, because that's not what I expected it to be. Um, I was in my reading. I, I've started rereading the Bible again. So I'm in Leviticus 2. Do you know what I'm talking about yet? Yep. Leviticus 2, 13. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the Covenant. covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. And it's funny because I started doing my own study on this ahead of time and so on, and um, it led me to Mark 9, 42. Yep. Yep. 
you know, talking about causes of sin, you know, putting in, better to have a millstone, you know, draped around your neck and thrown into the sea than it is to cause these little ones. But it goes on and says, um, salt is good, which is verse 50. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? And this one little part of the verse kind of stuck in my craw, which says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. And this is what Jesus said. And I'm wanting to know, I want you to, to expound what you think. I, I've got some ideas going on in my head of what he's been revealing to me, but I'd like you to speak on the covenant of salt and why it's so elusively covered and then Jesus mentioned having salt in you. So this is, uh, just FYI, this is a really massive subject. So I'm not going to be able to unpack the whole thing and still accomplish other things. When you, when you read the scriptures, you are doing yourself, your life, your heart, your mind, and your soul a huge disservice when you read them as a modern American Christian. Nothing in the Bible was written to a modern American Christian. Nothing. They didn't even have a concept of your existence. And I know you're thinking like, well, God wrote it. <laughs> so I'll real quick do this so that I can get to that. Let's talk about divine inspiration. These scriptures are divinely inspired, not divinely inscribed. There is a huge difference. The Ten Commandments are inscribed. The finger of God wrote those words in stone. God wrote it. And those are the only words in the Bible that God wrote. Every other word in the Bible, God inspired for someone to write. God was very aware of the people that he was using to write down what he was inspiring. He would not have come to Steve had I been alive 3,000 years ago, and he would not have come to Steve and say, hey, I need you to write a chapter in the Bible about melanoma. Why? Because I don't know that. Let, let me help you with all of your weird friends that have the flat earth thing that has re, been re-inspired. Like this thing comes around like every 20 years like a, like a bad back spasm or something. It's like it, it comes and everybody's like, ah, oh, flat earth. And then it, everybody's like, ah, oh, no, you're stupid. Oh, okay, I'm stupid. And then it goes away and then it comes back, flat earth. And nearly every one of the people that believe in flat earth, they say, why do you believe in the flat earth? Well, because I believe the Bible. And they have 
approximately five scriptures that annotate an idea of a flat earth. And the reason is, is because the Bible writers were not doing science. They were doing theology. <laughs> I don't know why that's so complex. They weren't writing science. They were writing theology. In their theology, in the cosmology of an ancient Middle Eastern person, the earth was under a dome and was flat. And so God used the cosmology of the people of that time to inscribe the scriptures. That doesn't mean that the earth is flat. It was just that God understood that the people that he was using didn't understand science and didn't have spaceships to figure it out. So when you're, when you're reading the scriptures, please understand that there is a lot of things that are going on in there that are going to make a ton more sense to the people's minds that it was written from and to. And so when you come along as a modern Christian and you've got microscopes and telescopes and and space shuttles and all this kind of stuff, and you go in there and see, this verse right here proves that, like Daniel. You know how many people believe in aliens because they read Daniel? I'm not, I know you're laughing, but I'm telling you. There is, there is massive Christian movements about aliens because they read the book of Daniel. Massive. And I can guarantee you, the last thing on Daniel's mind and God's mind when that was going on was aliens. The last thing. Because we don't think like the Bible writers and the Bible authors. So to back to Clark's question, a covenant of salt is... First of all, you have to be able to unpack covenant in their world. And a covenant to an ancient Middle Eastern person, we don't even mentally have a grid for that because covenants then were our words and you died if you broke a covenant. We break covenants all the time and almost brag about it. Hey, look what I got away with. And... So just to get into the mindset of a person who understands that covenant is one of the deepest words, one of the deepest concepts that you'll ever embrace, ever, as a person of that day and time, recognizing the fact that God himself did not yet was able to consummate a covenant with his people in blood that's why we have the activities of the sacrificial animals and things like that. A lot of people think that has to do with sin, but it doesn't. It actually has to do with sacred space, holy space, and covenant. The word sin in the book of Leviticus is, is not well interpreted by most of the people that read it. Because you think sin, as a modern American Christian, like, I sinned, I got drunk sinned verb, did something. That's not the mindset of the biblical writers or the biblical readers. Sin for them was a violation of sacred space, was a violation 
of the holiness in the relationship between God and man, and it was a violation of the covenant, and so in order to cleanse that place, again, there had to be bloodshed. Now, we're post-cross, and so that's why we can be super flippant about sin, because we're like, wow, Jesus died for it, I can sin all I want. That, that again, is not a mindset that anybody in the Bible would have ever ever even thought was possible to get there. And here we are, and, and now most of America lives that way. So when you go into the covenant of salt, this was God taking one of the elementary materials of our existence, of the cosmos. The cosmos is a word, it's a Greek word that incorporates the entirety of everything God created. So in the, like John 3.16 says, for God so loved the cosmos. And we translate it world because really, you know, in 1600, what else do you got? So again, even when you're like reading some of the older translations like the ASV and the KJV and stuff like that, you're talking, people that are writing those versions of the Bible only have the interpretation that they have available to them at those times. And that's why one of the reasons that I like to go through some of the modern translations because after finding the Dead Sea Scrolls and the communities at Qumran that have expanded vastly our understanding of the scriptures and the Masoretic text and all the different uh, textus recepticuses that we have, we've built a more robust understanding of the scriptures. And <clears throat> when, you, when you take in that language of the cosmos, it means more to us today than it meant to them but it still has the same definition, which is all of the created parts. They looked at the spirit world as uncreated, which makes sense because God was uncreated, and so they just assumed that his realm was uncreated with him, and then our realm was the created realm. And so what God, one of the things that God was doing, there was lots of dynamics that was going on in Covenant of Salt, but one of the things that God was doing was he was taking one of the most foundational foundational, fundamental elements of our cosmos, and he was saying, I want you to put that into your covenant. If you're following me, this is all in language. I want you to literally take part of yourself. Jesus came by and gave us a greater example of that, and he says, have salt with one another. He's saying that, you know, our bodies are composed of this. This is a the biblical writers and readers would have known that this is literally part of what makes us human. Science has come along later and said we're carbon-based, but before that, they knew that this was a composition of who we are. They knew it was necessary for every single human being to have a large amount of salt intake to survive. And so they figured it out that we are salt-based, and so these langu this language has a lot to do with the covenant connecting to you in an intimate way and connecting to all of you. When you put salt in, that's why Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. You are the new composition of the earth. Uh, scientifically, chemically, salt cannot lose its saltiness. 
Salt is salt. It is, uh, it's called a stable compound in scientific terms. You can't unsalt salt. Salt is always salt. So when Jesus said, how does, uh, what good is salt if it loses its saltiness? He wasn't thinking what you're probably thinking, like it changed its chemical composition from NaCHL or whatever it is into something else. What he was talking about, what he was referencing was, it was very common, these were folks that lived close to the Dead Sea, and they used to bring the minerals from the Dead Sea and they would use that as fertilizer. That, yeah, Ty sells this stuff, I think Tom does too. There's a, these elemental minerals that are in salty bodies of water, even though salt by itself, if you put it in dirt, will make the dirt unusable, if you take some of, these, uh, some of these whole earth compounds that have salt in them and you bring them into and you fertilize your fields with them, they produced much greater. So what Jesus was referencing was if the fertilizer, us, we are what makes the earth fruitful. If we go into the earth and we're not helping that earth bring forth, be fruitful, be healthy, then what good are we? Amen? You know, Jesus has a lot more direct opinion on our fruitfulness than we do. We, not we, maybe this church, because you guys are awesome, but we, Christianity, modern Christianity, it's literally all about us. I'm going to go to the church that's got the best programs for me, that makes me feel the best, that's got the best seat and chairs. If they've got the best music, they got the best building, they got the best programs, they got the best. It's all about me. And if you don't live up to your, your part, Pastor, I'm either cutting you off my check or I'm out of here. You better know. And I've had people do me that way. This is not, that is not the actual Christianity of Jesus. That's called churchianity. And it's selfish. And I don't know if some of those folks are even saved. Because I don't know how you can be saved by Jesus, the most selfless person who has ever drawn breath and stay selfish. I don't know how that's possible. I get it. I know people pull it off. God bless them. It's miraculous. The wrong kind of miracles. <clears throat> Jesus wants us to go into the earth and to make the earth fruitful. And the salt that we have is in ourselves. The covenant that was in Leviticus, and it's not just one time in Leviticus chapter 2, it was mentioned in multiple places in the Torah, that about this salt covenant, the covenant of salt. But Jesus expounded it here. You are now the new covenant. We are the living covenant with God. And so Jesus actually took this really important, powerful concept of the salt covenant, and he brought it into a New Testament um, pretense. And he says, you are now that salt. You no longer have to take physical salt and throw it into the sacrifice because you are the sacrifice and you are the salt. So now have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. 
this covenant that we have with God is not just with God. It is equal portions with each other as it is with God. Equal portions. I don't care how righteous you think you are, how good you think your right standing is with God. If you don't have it with your brothers and your sisters, then you are not in, you are not in right standing with God. It is impossible to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is, has some of the most, I don't know why more people don't even know this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse like 25, 26, 27, somewhere in there, it says that the reason that many of you are sick and many of you die, talking to Christians in churches, is because they do not honor the body. And you think that's bread. God bless you. This is the body of Christ. And if you think for a second that you can honor the head and not honor the body, you're a fool. You're a fool. And people do it all the time. And Paul says it kills you. It makes you sick and it makes you dead. Because you think you're honoring Jesus. And people are so flippant about the body that Jesus has called them to be. This is a local body, just so you guys know. This is what it looks like. And you know, people will, quote unquote, cheat on this all the time. There's, you know, stop by this church and you go to this church and you go to this church because God told me that I'm supposed to be an arm in five different bodies. What? We, we call that uh, abnormality. And somebody's been drinking nuclear waste. But God doesn't call people to do that. We're, we're members of one body. And I know people like to say, well, you know, the universal body of Christ. So how many arms does he have? The body that Paul was writing to was the Corinthian body. The Corinthian body. The local church in Corinth. The body that was supposed to be intimately in covenant with each other to the degree that they were honoring one another to the same extent that they were honoring the Lord. And because they weren't doing that, people were dying and getting sick. You know how many people die and get sick because they don't honor the local body? I've watched it with my eyeballs. It happens all the time. This covenant of salt is the new covenant. It's the organic parts of who you are being sown into not only the world, but into each other so that we can be fruitful and we can make the world fruitful and reclaim the Edenic, the Edenic plan that Jesus has, which is the end times, which is the great awakening, which is the apocalypto. I got lots of words for that, and we'll get into that later on in Foundation Stones. You want to add to that? basically covered everything that I had thoughts about on this. Um, but I do want to point out that uh, in verse 50, it says salt is good. And so the only place we're going to get our saltiness from is from God. He's good. He's Anything good in right. us is from him. And so if you're um, in a covenant relationship, whether it be spouse, friendship, um, if, you, if you see that you are struggling to bring that good 
godly things into that covenant, um, that's, that's a good indicator that you need to go back to God and have him help you navigate where you're, you know, you're losing your saltiness. Because we should all be coming into our covenant relationships, bringing in those good things that we have gotten from him. And part of losing that, that, losing that saltiness is because we are not getting what we need from him first to give to the people that we are in covenant with. Good word. You can't give what you don't have. Amen. You ain't got no salt. You can't give no salt. That help you? Deborah? Nice art shirt. <laughs> Welcome. In my, in my questions for Steve list. What? <laughs> Her questions for Steve list. You know my oh. list. Talk louder. You guys get the speaker. I don't. <laughs> so it says, whatever we lose, loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever we bind on earth will be bind, bound in heaven. Um, little explanation on that would be great. Since we already have it all, why do we need to loose and bind? Since we already have the victory and everything, is it just a matter of just proclaiming that victory while we're in prayer? and calling it forth, then what do we need to bind? And if that's a supernatural thing, what's the direction for that? So it's basically how do we bind the strong man down on earth, simultaneously releasing the gospel? Or does the gospel do that for us? Just pick one. <laughs> that was good. All right, challenge accepted. <laughs> uh, again, this is context. And I, I pray that sometimes you guys can finish some of my sentences before I speak them. But what is the context of these verses? It is the ecclesia. It's the church. This is right before when Jesus took the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And he said, and we got a whole series on this somewhere. It exists, I know. It's called Genuine Jesus. I did a whole series on these verses called Genuine Jesus. <clears throat> and in Genuine Jesus, the foundational scriptures were Matthew 16, 9, 18. Uh, Matthew 16, 18. And... This, this discourse between Jesus, this is an intimate time. It was just him and his 12. And he went to Caesarea Philippi, and I am not going to preach this. But Caesarea Philippi was one of the most important spiritual places on earth. This was very close to uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. It was also very close to the gates of Hades, which was an actual place that was recognized um, in their culture that demonic and small g god activities would take place from. This was near Mount Hermes, which was the mountain that they say gods would descend and ascend on. There was tons of, this is like the haunted house of the whole Bible, Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus takes his disciples there and he stands in front of these edifices that have, literally have gods carved into them and caves and, and all kinds of demonic, terrible entities. 
And while he's standing there with his disciples, he says, who do men say that I am? And they all have answers. You know, you're John the Baptist, reincarnated, or Elijah, or one of the prophets, or, you know, all the cool answers that they got. And this is probably one of the most important questions that anybody in this room will ever, 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 ever answer. And he looks at him and he says, who do you say that I am? You know, who you say Jesus is, is who he is to you. Stacy just texted me last night. She's like, I'm trying to write this song. I've been trying to write this song for three years. And I need a word here. I need a word to describe the way that I used to look at God, you know, in the bad way, the wrong way. You know, he was judgmental. He was wrath. He was sin. He was, you know, angry. He was whatever. If you believe God to be angry, if you believe that God changes his mind as often as you do, you know what God told me to do? Uh, yesterday he said the opposite. I know, God changes his mind with me all the time. Or maybe it's not God. Because that's not who he is. All these people that said, well, you know, he's John the Baptist, he's Elijah, he's Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He ain't. That's what they thought. So they interacted him based upon who they thought Jesus to be. So whoever you think Jesus to be, that is who he is to you. Whether it's right or wrong. It's a God of your own creation with the name Jesus labeled on it. It used to be called idolatry, but we can't say that in America because you'll get thrown out. So he says, who do men say that I am? And then Peter, God bless Peter. He is like the, he is like the Steve Castle of the Bible. Like you never know if he's going to say the stupidest thing ever and they're going to have to be like, cut the YouTube, cut it. Or they're going to be like, Ah, that was divine. And he, he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the whole world, the Son of God. And Jesus is like, whoa, Petros. That didn't come out of your brain, because I know your brain. <laughs> that came from the Father. You literally just had one of those awesome direct downloads. You had interaction, intimacy with the Father, and he gave you the answer, and you embraced it, and you spoke it. And then he said, on that revelation, I'm going to build my ecclesia. So the ecclesia is kind of the context here. A revelation of the ecclesia. A revelation of the ecclesia was the context. And then he goes into uh, different aspects. There's church discipline going on later on in some of these verses. But this is the context. <clears throat> and then he says, where am I at? Uh, the keys, uh, verse 19, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys, what do keys do? Lock and unlock. They don't do one or the other, they do both. I'll give you keys of the kingdom 
of heaven. This isn't keys of the kingdom of earth. This is keys to the kingdom of heaven. So how do you lock or unlock things of the kingdom? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, I'm not going to get all uh, lexical and geeky on you with language, but the verb tense here for loosing and binding is called the infinitive in the Greek, and the infinitive means that it has past, present, and future context to it. And it's a, there's also a, uh, I think it's called a post-participle or something like that, that also references the fact that it was something that was done first and then infinite. So after all that geekiness, here's the bottom line. You can't unlock something that God hasn't unlocked. It's his key. So I can do this analogously or I can do it language-wise. They both fit. So the analogy of the key, or I can use Greek language and come to the same conclusion. The conclusion is you can't unlock something that's locked with God's key. You can only unlock something that God made the key to unlock. And you can only lock things that God made the key to lock. And you know how many people are out there trying to lock and unlock stuff that God ain't got no permission for people to be jacking with? So for us to bind, lock, and loose, unlock, we first have to know what God's will is and what God has completed. Because you can't, I can't go bind the, the small g God that's over the uh, Arab population that's holding them in bondage. And people have done stupid, ignorant things. Uh, spiritual warfare things along these lines. I'm going to be an intercessor and I'm going to go, dude. No, you're not. You, that's not part of the keys of the kingdom that God gave to us. If that was the way it would have worked, then Paul just would have literally chilled in Rome and drank him some fresh wine out of fresh wineskin and just did some awesome interse intercession and set the whole Greek world free. Why do you have to go do all the walking around and preaching the gospel and getting arrested and getting beat? Why, could, why didn't he just, why wasn't he as smart as us modern Christians and just stay and intercede? Oh, he actually had to go and do stuff? Shocking. There's no ministry of intercession, just so you know. I'm, I'm not going to go on that tangent. So what we bind and loose is basically the, the simple end of this is you come into agreement. It's kind of like if you've ever seen a movie where they're about to launch a nuclear warhead and you need like two generals to walk up and they both stick their key in at the same time and they're like, one, two, three, engage, and they both turn it. That is you binding and loosening with heaven and with earth with God. God has already stuck his key in. You need to stick your key in. And then you and God in prayer and intimacy say, okay, we are going to kill sickness in our family. Jesus killed sickness in your family. It's called stripes on his back. We are going to kill oppression and depression in our family. You are binding and loosening things together with God that infinitely he was already created you to do that, but it, all, it started at the cross. At the atonement, Jesus is the one that created the key, 
And then when you take the key, heaven says, yep, they're right in line with what we want to do. Bring Eden. Let's bring Eden. Whatever you got to do on earth as it is in heaven, whatever you got to do, cooperate with me. Let's get this thing together. Let's get our keys in these locks. Let's get the locks unopened. Let's put our keys in the other locks that aren't supposed to be in our life and lock them down. They can never come back. That is binding and loosening. And please note, the context was ecclesia. Ecclesia. We're back to the church. I, just so you guys know, I didn't come up here with plan on preaching about church. These are your questions. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. He's the one that brought it back to this local fellowship. What Kay and I, as part of a micro church, Kay and I have a micro church in our covenant, and then we have a larger micro church in this family, what we do together binds and looses things. If our church believes in cancer comes from God and all of you should die from cancer because that's how God teaches you something and makes you humble, I'll be burying tons of you. And we'll be in agreement. And we'll lose cancer in this place. Let me also say this. <clears throat> If I get into adultery, I'll guarantee you there'll be about 10 of you getting into adultery. Because I'll lose it. You know the pressure that I, not, not negative pressure, but you know the pressures that I have on my own life to live as holy and as sacred as I possibly know how to? Because of you. I don't live holy for me. I live holy for you. Because I don't, you're welcome. you're welcome. I don't want anything to get into your life. I don't want open doors to get into your life because I wanted to be self-centered and a jerk. This is, this is really important. And everyone in here, you have leadership. You have family. You have, I know that me being intimate with Jesus affects our marriage. It is my fault if we are not tracking true in our marriage. Men, listen. It, these things don't stand alone. There's nothing that stands alone in the kingdom. They're all connected. The Spirit of God is omnipresent everywhere. So we as a family, we either bind or loosen things together. That's why unity is one of the most important words in all the epistles. You will see every epistle writer almost every time, unity, 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 unity. Why? Because together we bind, together we loose, together we interact with each other, and we cause good things or bad things. We sow salt into each other's lives, and we either help them fertilize and become more fruitful, or we can tear down, hurt, destroy, and make them become castrated. Yeah, and even in the, in the context, if you read the scriptures before, verse 18, and the scriptures after, First, before it, it's talking about brothers. Your brothers trespass against you. You go to your brother. And if yeah. they don't listen to you, then you bring two or three witnesses. And it's about reconciling that relationship with your brother in Christ. And then after that, it's Peter. Lord, how many times do we have to do this? <laughs> you know, 70 times 7. And so, you know, and that is smack dab in the middle of those two references. And it's, it's about relationships, just like Steve was saying. This is about relationships. This is about working things out with your brother and your sister or your spouse. And, 
and we, we kind of make it into this, um, I don't know if this is going to sound bad or not, but this, this super spiritual thing, binding and loosing and all this, when it's about reconciling with your, with your brother, reconciling with those covenant relationships so that you can, you can, your hearts will even be more, yeah, the word bound is knit. And so, you know, when you, when you work through things with someone, how much does that knit your hearts together even more? The Man, more and more that's a good word. that you, reconcile, you work through these things, you work through these, these things that you're having in your relationships or in your friendships, that it knits your heart closer together because you know you're for each other, that you're willing to have the hard conversations, that you're willing to admit when you're wrong or be humble and be like, you know what, I, I need to work on this in our relationship, Man. and I'm going to commit to do that. How much more does that knit our hearts together, you know? And so, you know, this is about relationship. This isn't this, you know, out there spiritual thing of binding and loosing. It is about relationship with your brother and sister and reconciling that and making sure that your hearts are knit together in covenant. <gasps> you know, in Matthew, the Matthew 18 version, because it's in 16 and in 18, the Matthew 18 version, a lot of that context is church discipline. And you say those words in modern American church, and you'll just get people quit your church. Oh, pastor said church discipline. We don't do that now. We're all free. We're all in the spirit. There's no such thing. <laughs> okay. Well, take Matthew 18 out of your Bible. I guess you don't, we don't like it today. But church discipline, not church punishment. This is one of the reasons that some of you parents are uh, not more uh, fruitful in your parenting is because you do parenting by punishment, not parenting by discipline. Discipline is to disciple. Punishment is to give either reward or consequence for actions. That is. You will never discipline through punishment. Amen. Amen. And I know that some of the parents are like, wait, wait, what? Because <clears throat> this is how it's always been done. You did a bad thing, come here, you're getting punished. Nope, that is not discipline. Discipline is end results. If you, if you are doing some kind of disciplinary tactic and it is not producing the end results, then you're not doing it right. And you probably need help. Hey, once again, back to the ecclesia, guess what? There's a bunch of people in here that would totally like to help you with your parenting if you would submit to that. But you go start talking about people's parenting and they'll quit and split in a hurry. You talk to people about their money, their marriage, or their kids, and they are outy in the church. Now, the funny thing is, is that I've had multiple wealthy people reach out to me about life coaching. So here's what's funny. Wealthy people know that life coaching is really important and they're willing to pay tens of thousands of dollars to do it. Christians are literally the opposite. I don't want nobody to be life coaching on me. And I totally ain't going to give you no money, preacher. It, it's, it is ironic. Every time I get a call or an interaction like that, I'm like, <laughs> rich, unsaved people are smarter than modern American churchianity people. <laughs> Discipline is something that a church has to have. If somebody in here gets out of line, if you found out 
that we had someone in the nursery beating kids. And you, and I didn't do something about it. You would rightfully be angry with me. Rightfully. You know, it's amazing. We want church discipline when it has somebody else involved. That's right. Get that nursery worker. Beat him, pastor. But then when you're doing something wrong and you're intimately a part of the family and you're doing something here and I come to you and I say something, shut up, nobody asked you. What if you're hurting someone else? Well, that's my business. I can do whatever I want. I'm free. Really? You're not in covenant. You're not in family. I'm not free to do what I want to do. My body belongs to her. It used to belong to me and I almost killed it. Then I got in covenant and gave it to her. She's done a lot better job with it than I did. Amen. <clears throat> That's part of the family. Like, it used to be about me and Kay, and then we came and joined a church, and now it's about you. And if we got to stay up late and make lemon shake-ups, and if we got to travel, and if we got to answer phone calls in the middle of the night, and we got to go to hospitals, and we got to... It's not about us. We joined a church. We're in a family. It's, it's about, it's about y'all. <clears throat> This context, this actually fits back into what I was just talking about, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. A lot of people are sick and dying prematurely because they're not interacting with these principles. Jesus said binding and loosening has to do with ecclesia, church discipline. Paul said the same thing. The reason that you guys have sickly, infirmed, and prematurely dying people is because you are not honoring the body. And we just read those scriptures and we're like, all right, time for communion. Let's make sure we honor the body. A cracker. Paul wrote about a cracker. Are you guys for real? It wasn't about a cracker. It was about this. <clears throat> Man, Kate said some really great things. All right. Anything else? Hi. So this is a little um, along the lines of what Pastor Bob had shared earlier, and I just, um, about the words we speak. So he talked about Proverbs 18.21. There's multiple. Proverbs 13.3 says, who guards his mouth, preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Ephesians, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths. Blah, blah, blah. There's multiple. So I just wondered if you could maybe talk about the importance of declaring, speaking over something, keeping something not spoken for, um, because the devil doesn't know our thoughts, but he gives us thoughts, right? And he knows humanity. So can you just expound a little bit on the things you should say, the things you shouldn't say, and of course, speaking life, that's obvious, maybe not so much to everybody, but can you just expound a little bit on that? And do you understand my question? Or yep. Statement? Yeah, I, I follow you. Uh, words are a huge, huge, huge deal. And you can tell by most interactions in our modern progressive society that that's not true anymore in the mentality of our friends and neighbors. Consider this, 
the part that makes us divine is our words. The spirit, what makes the spirit world higher than our world was their words. God didn't create the cosmos with a bolt of lightning from his index finger. He created the cosmos with his words. Everything that you interact with physically in your entire life was built by words. That chair you're sitting on, built by words. The substance of that chair was built by words. Everything came from words. Everything in your life has come from your words. Everything in your marriage, everything in your family, everything comes from words. What you speak is seed that will produce. Can't get around it. It is the truth. Well, I didn't mean those words. Still seed. I didn't want to put that dandelion seed right in the middle of my garden. The wind did it. It's still going to make dandelions. Your words produce. When it, I guarantee you that if I like uh, hit K, it would she would probably have more ability to get over that than me to cut her and hit her with my words. You can mend from bruises and cuts. You cannot mend from bruises and cuts by words from people, especially from their heart, because they carry power. That's why Jesus said, every vain word that you speak, you will be held accountable in the day of judgment. And he was telling that to believers, because there's a lot of believers like, well, no, we're in the new covenant. We're all forgiven now. And God's not. He was talking to believers. You will be held accountable for every vain word that you have spoken. This, this is why you've heard me say, if you walk up to me and start talking about the weather and, and whatever, and I see it even in this building, you know, people cannot walk up to Scott and not talk about cars. As if the entirety of his identity is cars. It, it saddens me. There's more to Scott than cars. Scott is an amazing man. There's more to Deb than nurse. There's more to the tech person in here than tech. And we just can't do it. We can't have authentic conversations with people. It, it, it's sad that we live in a society like that. And it shouldn't be that way. You walk up to me and talk about the weather, what it says to me, and this might not be to you, you walk up to me and start talking about the weather, what it says to me is there's nothing better in you than to talk about the fact that the sun shines like it has for the last 6,000 years. As if I don't know. <sighs> Can I add one thing to what you're saying? Yeah. What I, the other part of, that I forgot to add. So when you're, when you're speaking and declaring, the, there's a difference between just saying it in your mind and speaking it out loud, right? So it's, if you're declaring your own healing, it's more valuable, correct, to say it out loud or, and or effective, powerful, than to just repeat scripture in your mind than to say it out of your mouth. And what is the difference between something that you have 
like a, a dream or a plan or something that you have in your mind that you maybe shouldn't say out loud to allow the devil to have because he doesn't necessarily know that, correct? Yeah, uh, she said something real quick, and some of y'all might not have picked up on this, but we've had conversations about this. The devil is not the almighty God, except in the reverse way. The devil is just a small g God Elohim, a spirit being, who doesn't have any more access to you than, than some demonic presence in Africa. And I know we make a big deal out of the devil. We think he's like omnipotent, all-powerful, all and omnipresent. He's not any of those things. He doesn't know what's in your head until you talk. God bless you. Or until you do something. Yeah. Cut me off. I'll show you. And the devil's like, Ooh, well, we're on it now. <laughs> Load the gun. You... The, it says in Proverbs, it says, it's better to be silent and thought a fool than open your mouth. And be, Jim used to say, my stepdad used to say it this way, it's better to be silent and thought a fool than open your mouth and erase all that. And he was talking to us that he affectionately called the dorks. Me and my little brother were the dorks of Jim. And, he's, and so he would, he would always allude to our dorkness, and that was part of him alluding to our dorkness. He's like, when you open your mouth, everybody knows you're a dork. But the Bible says the same thing. Where in the uh, in the magnet multitude of words, there lacks not sin. The more you talk, the more likely you're going to hang yourself. And some of you may not pick up on this, but outside of this kind of a context, outside of a ministry context, I'm a very quiet person. I listen. I watch. I listen. Because listening and watching will tell you the fruit in people's lives, which will then give you an opportunity to identify root. Words are infinitely, infinitely important. And a lot of people don't have a grasp on how that takes place. Also, not just the words that you release, but also the words you hear. If you are with, I d used to deal with this all the time in the restaurant business, where these young ladies who I thought were amazing and they were smart and they would be, be with these loser jerks. And I'm like, why are you with, because he says he loves me. He doesn't. Dear Lord, do, how many ways do you want me to help you parse this? Besides the bruises on your face, the fact that he won't let you have a phone because he doesn't want you to call or talk to someone, the infinite amounts of control that he wants to affix over your life, but he says he loves you? Are you for real? And they believe it because words are powerful. Words are powerful. We don't use them in the way that they're meant to be, but you hear that over and over and over. This is something that, Okay, a part of her testimony, she didn't have value on her. And so words like that would affect her. I was this way before I was a Christian. I would manipulate girls all the time. Just say stuff that they want to hear. Buy them some flowers, good to go. We're, I don't think we realize how easily we're manipulating. You know how many people out there think that a mask works? <laughs> You're laughing. 
We were just downtown last night, people wearing masks. Keep laughing. Words work. Words work. They will convince, they'll convince boys that they're girls and girls that they're boys. Words work. They work in the positive and they work in the negative. Now, the enemy doesn't know your thoughts, but he knows your words and he knows your actions. And he'll take advantage of both of those. Now, you cannot manipulate yourself. I feel sick, so by the stripes I'm healed. By the stripes I'm healed. By the stripes I'm healed. You're not going to manipulate yourself. But you could be led by the Spirit of God to continue to reread that and or reconfess that so that you will get the revelation of it. When the word of God becomes louder than the word of man, you will have God's fruit in your life, in your heart. This is why I'm also very careful about what words I allow man to speak into my life. Images are words too, just so you know. Looking at porn is words. And it's planting in your life, and it will bear fruit. Adultery, physical abnormalities. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says that the sin of fornication, which has all the sexual sin context, the sin of fornication is the sin that directly affects your physical body. Yeah, you know me, I'm not going to go there. I've dealt with this a lot. Physical illness in some people's lives is directly caused by uh, improper sexual activity. And porn is one of them. And people, because people think like, well, I'm not touching nothing. I'm not looking ain't touching. Jesus literally said, if you look, it's lusting in your heart. It is touching. Because images are words. The devil knows this better than most of the people in this room. This is why he sends specific images to your life. He'll send you images by social media, by TV, by Facebook knows it. You know, if we sat around here and talked about an ice maker for the rest of the, you, every one of you will have an ice maker ad on your Facebook feed. Because they know. Facebook listens to your words. They know what you're talking about, and it plants those seeds. And guess what you do? You eat the fruit. If you don't want those things in your life, don't, if you don't want a banana, don't plant banana seeds. If you want righteousness and holiness, plant God's word. Stay around conversations that are based on the kingdom, around godly people, covenant people. They're going to sow those kind of words into your life and help you reap the benefits of them. So, we're, amen. so words are powerful. Words are important. Words uh, can help you accomplish anything that God has for you. I don't honestly think you're going to do anything without having the word of God in your mouth and in your heart. But notice there's a connection, heart, heart and mouth. It's not mouth and mind. It's mouth and heart. And, but the only way to get something into your heart is through your mind. You can't get something into your heart without it going through your mind. So your mind's engaged. But what creates divine power or demonic power in your words is the heart-mouth connection. Not heart-mind connection. But you do, or you, you do enough mouth-mind connection and you'll eventually work that sucker into your heart. Good or bad? Good or bad? You want to work something good in there? Talk it. 
listen to it. You want to you be healed? Listen to sermons on healing. Read scriptures on healing. Confess things about healing. Jesus said, whatever you seek, you find. But some people just won't shut down enough to do that. I've, I've actually, Dr. Steve Castle has actually given people prognosis and, and applications in their life to do certain things. And I've had people say, that's too hard. I'm not going to do that. And they're dead. I'm like, you know, it would have been easier to live. But, you know. What do I know? I'm just a silly preacher. One of the things that I want to add, too, is uh, just that balance of, because uh, I run across this a lot in, in ministering to people, is they think that just because they're trying to communicate with some, someone, uh, maybe a physical struggle that they're having, maybe a relational struggle they're having, maybe a personal struggle that they're having, that they're giving power to that maybe that physical sickness or that what's going on there, but I'll just use that as an example. Um, and so they, they, they don't tell anybody. Right. And they keep it to themselves. And they have this physical thing going on in their body, and they don't want to say anything to anybody because that, that I won't be in faith, and I'm going, to, I'm going to give power to this sickness or this disease or whatever's going on in my body. So there, there is a balance to this um, that we do need, if we need help, we need to be able to communicate what we need help with um, and not, not believe that we're empowering that. Because if you're coming to someone for help with something, if you're going to someone, you know what? I got this thing going on in my body, and it's not supposed to be there. And I am I'm not seizing my victory over that, and I need some help. We do this a lot, by the way. But you see how I said it's not supposed to be there, and I need help. So the power is not in the fact that this physical thing is going on in my body. It's the power is the fact that I know it's not supposed to be there, and I'm humble enough and willing enough to go to someone else and say, I need help. And so there is a balance of the enemy loves it when we keep things secret and hidden and in the dark. He does. Because then we're not exposing it to the light. We're not talking about it with our covenant people in our lives that we have that our God is called to help us with these things, and so it just empowers it to stay even longer because we're not opening up our lives to the people that God's placed in our, in our lives right. for help. Very true. And so there is that balance of if there's something going on in your body, relationally, personally, a struggle that you're having personally, that, don't, that you understand that there is power in getting help. There is power in getting counsel. There is power in going to your disciple or, or your grace group leader or your pastor and saying, I need some help here. There, you, I almost, I'm almost of the opinion that you cannot, if you have a secret sin, like an addiction or something like that, and you don't expose it, you are on purpose feeding it. I'm not saying that I want you to, don't you come rushing the altar and tell me all your junk. Huh? That's not the point. The point is, is that as long as you're hiding that sucker, you are feeding it. It's like a tapeworm. It is in you and you are feeding it. And it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger until it kills you. But once you expose that, you bring a tapeworm outside of the intestines, it's dead. Dead. It cannot live. Another thing too, 
having this conversation about words, I also need to throw this in for balance purposes too, which is we are not going to have a bunch of people in beloved church being the confession cops. We run around and say, you said something wrong. Here's your ticket. You should never say that again. Don't you ever say those words again. You do me that way and we're going to have a conversation. Don't do that. What Kay's referencing is there's a difference between saying, um, I am struggling. I have a, uh, well, I'll use diabetes. There, I have symptoms of the effects of diabetes in my life that I want you to believe God for me and help me with, or my diabetes is killing me. Yeah. <laughs> my diabetes, now it's yours. It's part of your identity. You've owned it. it you're, it's possessive. It's yours. Versus this diabetes is trying to kill me. Please help me. And you're not anti-confessing. You know, because a lot of people used to do that. I grew up in Word of Faith, and we had tons of confession cops that would run around and write us tickets all the time. Well, you said that you didn't have the money. I don't. Well, you got it in the spirit. Shut up. <laughs> Man. <laughs> hate that stuff. I don't have the money. Okay, well, let me help you grow your wealth. Thank you. Didn't need another cop in my life. I needed help. Oh, shocking. <clears throat> so uh, keep those, those things in balance with words. There's two, <clears throat> there's two questions that came in electronically. And I'll uh, read the first one. It'll be a real uh, quick answer. <clears throat> uh, this person's concerned about the endorsement of the American Nationals, the, the ASN, the American State Nationals, which we just had a meeting about last week. <clears throat> As my understanding is that it leads to people to believe that they're no longer obligated to pay taxes, have a valid driver's license, et cetera. Concern that this could not only cause a lot of loss and trouble for individuals, but also damage the reputation of our church. Amen, Ecclesia. Uh, and moreover, the message of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Could you please address this and give us clarity? Should we be concerned about damaging the reputation of the body of Christ and his message by encouraging involvement in renouncing citizenship and refusing to obey the law, even though the law, some of the laws are unjust? <clears throat> so uh, first off, I'll say that most of these questions could be answered by any of the folks that are in here that are going through the ASN process. And so I would encourage anybody that has any questions about the ASN stuff to go to them. They'll, they'll be super honest. And I had, I had a ton of these reservations before I let these guys kind of have free reign and cut them loose. Because I wanted to make sure that anything that happens here is kingdom. We're not raising up some anti-government militia up in here with our secret guns in the basement and our spam. That's not, I'm, I've already been in that cult. I'm not going back. And, and a lot of people think that a ton of these contexts because they hear just like these little pieces of, oh, you got to renounce your citizenship. But what they don't hear is you have to renounce your citizenship to a corporation called USA. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm okay not being in a corporation. I would rather be under the Constitution. And so I understand the language of 
renouncing something that doesn't mean that you are throwing America in the trash and you're going to be some rebel running around out there trying to get shot by the government on top of a mountain. That's, that's not what that means. It means that you, are, you want to disconnect yourself from a corporation. And just so you know, anybody in here that's authentically born again and you call Jesus Lord, you don't have a secondary Lord. Amen. No king but Jesus. Right. No nation but the kingdom of God. No country but heaven. But we live concurrently in two realms. So that means that I'm going to fight for this nation. I'm going to fight for the constitutional, the constitutional foundations of this nation, which almost every one of the ASNs are all about. <clears throat> and there's also a lot of other language in there about freedom and liberty that they are way better at than I am that were birthed from the scriptures about freedom and liberty from Christ. And so I would not, please, uh, at, at least accept this aspect of it. I wouldn't be allowing some of these things to happen here if I didn't go through it and I really didn't believe that it was concise and consinct with some of the mission and the vision that we have here as Beloved Church. I, it would not be something that I allow to take place here. And I stay on top of these fellows. I talk to them pretty regular to make sure that they're doing things that are in the right context and it stays within kingdom. They don't have a right to go run around and be more ASN than Christ. Yeah. And when they get all their money, they have to tithe. <laughs> <clears throat> so please, if you have questions about ASN, go ask them. And then the last one is, can you explain Romans 8, 27 and 28? Means, as I think it is often not correctly interpreted. Yep. What is a critical spirit? Uh, which that's not Bible words. It is the same. Is it the same as being judgmental? What is a discerning spirit? Judgmental is a word that we've created in a, in churchianity, and critical spirit is a word that's been created in churchianity. These aren't Bible words. So there's things that we've just created to make people feel uh, to actually give people permission to not have other folks sent by God to help them discern their life. If you think that you, you and the Holy Spirit all by your lonesomes are going to navigate humanity, then you forgot one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. The first thing that God ever said about humanity, please note my words and being very particular with my words. The first thing in the whole Bible that God ever said about humanity was, it's not good that they're alone. And he hasn't changed his mind. An isolated Christian is a defeated Christian. The more you isolate, the more you're defeated. These, uh, the critical spirit, the judgmentalism, all that kind of stuff, it oftentimes just indicates that a person is very fragile, they're very self-centered, they're very touchy, and they don't want anybody to touch all their hurting places. Or they haven't found people that actually love them that want to come in with the Spirit of God and help them navigate stuff. And that happens too. I get that. The first part of this question is about Romans 8, 27, and 28. We have a whole series 
that's called Love and Purpose, and it's got a um, it's got a picture of a compass on the front of it. And I use this verse, and I did 20 messages on that verse, Romans 8, 27, and 28. I'll just real quick give you like the the five second flyby because Romans 8:28 is the most misunderstood and misapplied scripture I believe in the entire Bible because people sort of walk around well God's just going to work it all for good it, and they just throw this out there like this is the the spiritual pixie dust unicorn of all things spirit like well I know you're going through bad stuff but God's going to work it out together for good it is, it's lame-o. We've accepted this. That verse doesn't say that God's going to work everything together for good. That's one half of one verse, which is what we're all really good at doing. Uh, verse 28, Hopi. 28 says that God is able to work everything together for good under two qualifications. That you love him. Not he loves you. You love him. And that already makes a bunch of people shiver, like, oh, I don't know if I do that. Well, you better figure it out. That we love, for those that love him, and qualification two, for those are called according to his purpose, not yours. Not, not yours. If you're doing your purpose, then you don't get to stand on the promise that God's going to work everything together for you. You're going to work your, if you're doing your purpose, by default, that means you have the responsibility of working everything together for your good or bad, because you're on your purpose. You've said, God, I got this. And he says, okay. God's a gentleman. You think you got it? He'll let you get it. And then when it gets all jacked up, you don't get to run to him. But I thought you'd work everything together for good. Yeah. That is according to my purpose, not yours. I just had this conversation with an inmate this morning in Stevenson County that he, I said, you're in this jail, and he agreed, you're in this jail because you had you on the throne of your life for all these years. And he started crying. He's like, oh my gosh, you're exactly right. I didn't realize it. I said, Jesus is supposed to be sitting on your throne, and you've been sitting there. How has that turned out for you, bucko? It's terrible. I'm in jail. I'm like, I know. That's how it ends. With you as king of your life, it's going to end terrible. And you don't get to blame God. That wasn't five seconds. There's a series back there that I do a lot better than what I just did in this 10 seconds. So please get a copy of that series, and it'll go into way greater depth than what I just did. But judgment is a massively important part of the kingdom. If you do not have people in your life that cannot bring in godly judgment, then you are not having discernment take place in your life. Pastor Rich judged me like 10 times. I even called some folks and had conversations about Pastor Rich judging me. Spent eight days with me, and he about twice a day, he was judging me over something. Praise God. Praise God, he loves me enough to tell me places that he thinks in my life are not headed the right direction. Thank God that I have someone in my life that's older and wiser than me that can help point out stuff that I don't see. 
and thank God that he loves, that he has so much courage and love for me that he actually says it and he's not worried about me getting all butthurt with him and tell him that I don't like you as pastor no more. I'm out of here. I'm going to find me another pastor. No, I told him and I appreciate him. I said, I don't like this conversation, but I love you for doing it. Yeah. And he loved me back. It's hard to be mad at Pastor Rich longer in about 10 seconds. Do you have anything you want to add to that? Uh, I didn't just want to say real quick, uh, you know, these, these last three questions, you know, what is a critical spirit? Is it the same as being judgmental? What is a uh, discerning spirit? Uh, and, you know, just like, like Steve said, you know, those terms aren't in the Bible. And so when you all come across maybe teaching or messaging and yeah. you are not you know, immediately quickened with scripture verses or scripture references, or um, you don't understand them, that, um, first of all, they're not in the Bible. I wouldn't put much stock in what they're, they're telling you or teaching. Um, and um, secondly, you know, if, if there are some scripture references that they've associated with those teachings, that you, you dig into them for yourself, and you find out what God says about those words and not right. what that person told you these words mean in the scripture. That you do your own due diligence and you take that time with the Father to have him reveal to you what that scripture means. Because we have a lot of people that um, don't take the time to do that and because this person's really charismatic and they're just, they just have this great message and you think, oh, that's the solution to my problem. Yep. But if it's not from the word of God and it doesn't, reflect the Father's heart, that you need, you need to dig into that for your own self and figure out what the Father says those scriptures mean. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And so if you take a little bit of the word's language on something, it'll leaven your whole lump. One of the big ones is that, you know, it's, it was never allowed in, in the past for the world to accept or for the church to accept the world's version of dealing with issues. But lately, it's really cool because people now need Christian psychologists. The Bible calls that discipleship. And we, we just have to adopt the world's ways. The biblical term for this is called Hellenism. Hellenism was when the church adopted a bunch of Greek and Roman and put it in the church and then they mingled the two together and say, okay, now we got a Greco-Roman version of Christianity. And then some of the church fathers would come in and say, there's no such thing. There's Christianity. And then they had to unpack all that kind of stuff. So don't let the world do that to you. Don't let the world change it. This, God knows what he meant when he wrote it. This is how it works best. Now, if you want to go out there in the world and, and interact with that stuff, you're free to do that. But just so you know, it's going to make it really confusing for your heart because you're going to tell your heart, hey, God is our whole source and God's going to work everything. And then you go out to the world and do it. Your heart's going to be like, hey, wait, 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 wait. Which way are we doing this? Are we going to the secular world or are we going to the kingdom of heaven? So you're going to have to figure out which way you go on that. All right. Please rise. I'd like to bless you. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us as we have encountered Jesus Christ through the ministry of his life-changing word. If you would like to learn more about Steve Castle Ministries and Beloved Church, you can go online to stevecastle.com or belovedchurchillinois.com. You can also contact us at 815-990-0367. 
Always remember that you are a part of the beloved family of God, and Beloved Church is the place where you are greatly loved. Now please open your heart to receive as Pastor Steve proclaims the blessing of the Father over your life. I pray, I declare that above all things that you allow the finished work of the cross to bring prosperity into your finances and also divine health prospering your body and all of these things are going to affect you in a supernatural way as you allow your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions and your personality to be perfected in prosperity that the Father desires for you to have. We love you and we cannot wait to see and be with you again soon. Goodbye, beloved.